Could you pray with me real quick? Let's start off like that. Lord Jesus, you're amazing. And I never, ever, ever want to stand in your presence to, to speak your word, your word, only your word, please, without reverently bowing before you and saying, please, Holy Spirit, you move here. You speak here. You speak to your people. This is your people. Your people, powerful. We talked about last week, grasshoppers to locusts, Lord. Grasshoppers to locusts, molting, 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 changing into what you've called us to be, a new season. We're asking for that, Jesus, for your spirit to pour down like rain in a new season. Use us in our city and our cities. People coming from everywhere. Use us as a church to affect our neighbors. Use us as a church to affect our neighbors in our homes, where we live, where we come from, where we gather. Let us honor you, Jesus. But even, even as we do that, use us to minister to each other, to show love to each other, love one another the way that you love. You, you called us to love, Jesus, and you command for us to love, but that command would be ridiculous, Lord, if you didn't put the love in our hearts to be able to do it. Praise you, Jesus. Open up our hearts to hear from you today. We ask that in your name. Amen. Amen. This is fascinating to me. I've been studying a section of Scripture where Jesus gets anointed. And I'm sure you're familiar with the story. A, a woman comes in with an alabaster jar, and she's got a super expensive uh, perfume. It's a nard. It's an it's a oil. And she's going to rub it on Jesus. She's going to put it on his head and feet. And so, you know, everybody's, anyone who's been around the Bible for any length of time, you know the story. And so people would kind of look at it as if it is one time, like it only happened once. But it literally happens three times. It's just like when Jesus clears the temple and people hear that story and he you know, goes in with a whip and he, he, he overchanges all the, the money changers' tables and throws, scatters coins everywhere and just like really, really shakes it up and purges it and then all these people come in and get healed. He does that at the beginning of his ministry and he does it at the end of his ministry and there is no end to his ministry, at the end of his earthly ministry. He does it, he, he purges it at the beginning and he purges it at the end and that's a good word for us, by the way, people. Often the church and the people, we got to take our hearts before God and say, purge it again. Purge it again. Whip out of there everything that doesn't belong. Purge it again. I, I, I've been walking around this world. I, I've, I've experienced some dark things. Purge it again. But this anointing is fascinating. It'll happen three times. And I'll show you, I'll show you in Scripture how it explains that it's more than once. But there's a reason. Like everything in the Word, there's a reason. So as we approach this amazing season of Easter, Jesus, our Passover lamb, sacrificed for our sins, as we approach this time to really give honor to God, let's see why this anointing happens this way and why it's repeated. So the first one is Luke 7. So Luke 7 is our first slide, I believe. And I'm just going to read it, and you can follow along if you have your Bible, if you have your Bible app, or if you just want to look on the screen. And it reads like this, Luke 7, verse 36. 
When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A woman in the town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's table. So he came there with an, she, sorry, came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, poured perfume on them. When the Pharisees who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered him, Simon, I got something to tell you. Because the guy's name's Simon, so we're given that. Tell me, teacher, he said. Well, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them was going to love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman, but he said to Simon while looking at the woman, Do you see this woman? I came into your house, and you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, a greeting kiss like in our culture, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, as many sins, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever's been forgiven little, loves little. But then Jesus said to her, he's, not, he's done talking to Simon, he zooms in on her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that forgives sins? He even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, like, don't pay attention to him. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Amen. So a couple of notes right off the bat. We know that the three anointings have some big-time similarities. Big-time similarities. That's why everybody thinks they're one story. So in all of them, Jesus is God's son. He's God in the flesh. He can forgive sins. And then Jesus is worthy of being extravagantly worshipped. To take something that is like a year and a half's worth of wages and, 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 and pour it on him in one shot is like saying, I just adore you with everything that I have. You're worthy of my best, Jesus. You're worthy of the best I have to offer. All three of them have that in them. Jesus is being anointed for burial. That's, that's all three of them that that is, is pointing towards he is the Passover Christ. And then Jesus can forgive and erase sins. And all three of them, it's clearly illustrated. He forgives sins. He can forgive sins. He is Jesus. He is God in the flesh on an earthly mission. And finally, Jesus is the resurrection before all three of these anointings. He resurrects a dead person just prior, before all three. And so he's showing everyone, I am the resurrection. I am the life. I am the Passover Christ. In this one, this is a different time than the other two. This one, the other two happen within four days of each other. This one happens a year prior 
And you know, because when you're reading the scriptures, he leaves a section of scripture just above this. And oh, and some people say, well, it's not chronological. Okay. But Luke created a very, very orderly chronological gospel. Mark and Luke, most everybody that reads them and studies them says, okay, Matthew jumps around. John jumps around. They had a different purpose. They're telling truth, but they don't necessarily go chronologically. Mark is very chronological, very linear. He starts, he shows you exactly what Jesus did. Here's who he is. Here's what he's done. Here's, here's the Son of God. Here's the power that he has to heal and to resurrect. And then, and then he just finishes. He's quick. But John focuses on the love of Christ, the deity of Christ, the light of the world, and that, and that, that, he's, that he has died for the sins of all mankind. But, but Mark... And Luke, they're very specific and careful to, to follow a linear chronological pattern. And, and, and Luke, a doctor, he's taking notes all the time. And he, and he said, most excellent Theophilus, I've tried to make an orderly account for you. And so he orders it all out. Well, right before this, Jesus is in Capernaum. And he meets the centurion. He does a miracle for him. And then there's this funeral happening in Nain. And so here's, here's the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan. And here's the Dead Sea. So Jerusalem and Bethany, where the other two anointings, they're down here. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. He was going to die for our sins. But way up here in the Sea of Galilee, you have Capernaum. And over here you have Nain. Nain, there's a funeral going on. There's a widow and she has one son. And that son dies. And they're, they're carrying him out of town. And Jesus walks up and puts a hand on the casket or on the, on the briar. And all the pallbearers stop. Like, ooh, we've heard about this dude. He's going to do something. And then he says, he says, don't cry. Don't cry to the mom. And the boy gets up and give him back to his mom. He, he's, he's not just, just suddenly, like, 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 it's not like the synagogue leader's daughter, not, not that it matters, but just died, and he walks in and says, okay, everybody, she's, she's just sleeping, she's not dead, but they're all like, no, we're pretty sure she's dead. This is someone who's been dead, they plan the funeral, they're having the funeral, he's been dead for a while, and Jesus comes and just resurrects his life. When you get to the next one at Bethany, he goes to Lazarus' tomb before that one. And says, okay, it's been four days. This guy's rotting in there. Roll it away. It's going to smell. Roll it away. Take the grave clothes off him. Lazarus, come out. Now, I heard it said that the reason he said Lazarus is because if he didn't, then every dead person everywhere would have risen from their graves and come out because it's Jesus and he is the resurrection and the life. So had he said not just Lazarus, if he just said, come out of your graves, well, then they'd be like, Brrr. oh, gosh, that was kind of ahead of, ahead of schedule. You know, so he just, so he specifically says, Lazarus, and Lazarus just, you know, I mean, you can just picture him just trying to, you know, he's all wrapped up, and then coming out and stumbling into, and everybody pulling out, he's alive, and he doesn't smell, and he's not gross, because when Jesus resurrects, he gives you newness of life. Whatever was wrong isn't wrong anymore. Whatever was broken isn't broken anymore. It's what we're promised. So, that resurrection takes place before the next two anointings. It's important to understand. He's saying, I am the resurrection and the life, but I'm also the one who's going to die. It seems like this contradiction. 
So you've got Jesus, God himself, completely safe from danger, in heaven, can't die, untouchable, invulnerable. And then he comes and he's born into Bethlehem, where, by the way, most of the sacrificial lambs were born and raised right there. And, and so he comes to Bethlehem appropriately, born there as a sacrificial lamb. John the Baptist sees him and goes, oh, the, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. It was such a weird thing. Everybody else is looking for him to overtake Rome, and John's declaring him the Lamb for slaughter. It would have been such an odd thing for the hearers. I thought the Messiah was going to come and overthrow our enemies. He is, but not in this little puddle you call earth. He's going to overthrow the devil. He's going to overthrow death. He is eternal. But he comes, and a God that can't die, a God that doesn't know how to die, a God that's always been, came to be vulnerable and die. A God that couldn't die decides, I'm going to put me in human flesh. I will die. But he's Jesus, so he can't stay dead. So we're in the anointing. And you're, and you're, and you're wondering, okay, so, so why these three things? Why, why do this in different ways? Why show it three different ways? Why Nain and this? And you might, well, why, why does that show that that's different? Because he goes from ministering to the people and then it said he quickly, he quickly comes into this funeral procession area. And then the next section, he hears that John the Baptist has sent people to say, hey, are you the one? Or should we look for somebody else? Because John's frustrated and he's in jail and he's kind of losing focus a little bit. You're the one, right? And right at that time, Jesus heals all kinds of people. He's preaching the gospel to the poor and he announces all these things that he's about. And he says, go back and tell John those things. So John the Baptist is alive Six days before the Passover that Jesus dies, when he gets anointed again, John's been dead for a year. In this account, John has just asked, are you the one? Now you've got, and some people say, well, this guy's name is Simon. And in the other two anointings, that guy's name is Simon too. How many lorries are in this church? I mean, I think we're like 15 of them. Like if you're a lorry, raise your hand right now. Yeah, it was one, two, three, the, the four. There's like six online, seven. I mean, there's not just one Simon. And if, if there weren't enough of them, you know, there's Simon Peter. Peter, Cephas, Simon. People get like nicknamed Simon. So it's not, that, that's not enough. He's a Pharisee. Imagine, just imagine for a second, in this world of Pharisees who are so cold and so demeaning and so judgmental, and your sinful woman who's known to be that, so much so that the people there go, if this guy was a prophet, for crying out loud, you don't have to be a prophet to know. Everybody here knows this, this person's reputation. How, how could he not know? You know, she's, she's kissing his feet and wiping it with her hair. I mean, it's just, this looks wrong at our dinner party. Now, and then in their defense, say you're just having dinner with some friends and someone comes in and do, does that, you know, it's, it's shocking. It's stunning. But to take an alabaster jar full of an oil, a perfumed oil that is so expensive, 
and rub his feet with it and then use her hair. Scripture says that's a woman's glory, to use everything that she has to glorify God. Even though she knows that she's walking into just sheer judgment to do it. She has no care what those Pharisees say about her. She knows they hate her. She knows that they judge her. And she walks in and gets down, just down, just as low as she can go, kissing the feet, crying, pouring, pouring it out and rubbing her hair like it's a cloth into his feet. In front of this crowd of jerks. who don't even mind saying, look at her. What is she doing? What's the matter with her? Notice that nobody in this section says anything about the fact that she gave something valuable. You want to know why? They don't care. They don't care this time that what she gave was valuable because they consider her and everything she touches invaluable. So they don't care that what she has is valuable this time. In the other two, someone will say, what? This could have been given to the poor. Not this time. No one cares. She's not valuable. Therefore, anything she touches is not valuable. We don't even want her at our party. We, we're tolerating Jesus. Here's, here's a fun fact about Jesus. When you invite Jesus, you invite everyone that comes with Jesus. So when you have a party for Jesus, everyone that comes with Jesus comes. And so that is something that Pharisees should be well aware of when they invite him. You're not just inviting Jesus. You're inviting the whole crew. His disciples, the ones following him, those cleansed from their sin, who the Pharisees cannot see a cleanse from their sin because they don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. But this woman does. So this woman gets the anointing from Jesus, gets the freedom from Jesus, gets the cleaning from Jesus. Your sins, my daughter, are erased. They are for, as far as the east is from the west. You're forgiven. Your act, your faith, your sins are forgiven. She's the only one sitting there that got what she needed. And what Simon didn't understand, what Simon the Pharisee didn't understand was Jesus was saying to him, it doesn't matter if you owe 50 or if you owe 500. You can't pay. If you're someone who's struggling financially, you're just trying to make ends meet and you owe $150, but for you, that means you're going to have to save whatever little bit extra you've got out of every paycheck for like a year to get to that $150. And to someone else, that $150 is a joke. They take people out to lunch and eat $150 worth of food. It's just nothing. But to this person, like, no, I got to scrape and, and scrounge to get that $150. And Jesus said, it doesn't matter if it's 150 or if it's 1.5 million. You can't pay. The wages of sin are death. You can't pay that back. We're born into sin. You can't pay that back. You need a Savior. 
That's why we've been killing the Passover lamb all this time. Killing the Passover lamb all this time. We're just, it won't purge sin. It doesn't get rid of sin. It's a band-aid until the appropriate time. It's an act of worship. It was supposed to happen, but to the time to point to the Christ. Year after year, thousands of lambs raised up all around, but Bethlehem was like, one of the places that was really known for producing mass amounts of these Passover lambs. Yeah. You know what people would do? You know what Jewish families would do? They would take them and they would bring them into their homes when it got close to the time of Passover. The one that was the perfect one, you were being very careful to make sure nothing bad happened to it. So what you do is, and what, and what I discovered this, I thought this was interesting, what shepherds do, and I saw this in an agricultural magazine. It had nothing to do with anything gospel-related. They weren't trying to, but I just thought it was fascinating. They rub oil and, and like, like this kind of nard-type oil all over these sheep. They, they put it on their heads, the shepherds do, because they get something that looks like scabs all over their head, and then, then they're super-duper gross, and, they get the, and it's just, just an infection that they get. Uh, these flies go up in their nose and produce larvae that kind of gets up into you know, in the nasal cavity and drives them nuts, and they whack their head on the wall and on, on the ground and on other sheep, trying to make it stop because it just is so miserable to them. But if you put all this oil on there, then the things can't land, and they can't, they can't make that happen. They, they put oil all over their legs and their feet because they're on the craggy surfaces where they, where they were uh, raising them so that they don't get them all cut up and, and jarred up or break their legs because then they can't be used for a Passover lamb. It has to be a perfect lamb, and there can't be broken legs, and, they, and there can't be uh, illness, and there can't be something that's marring what it looks like. It has to be perfect, like Jesus was perfect and sinless. It has to be like that. It was pointing to him. That's why. So, the, so a Jewish family, they, hey, take, take, take enough for your family. They'd take that one lamb, and then it's like six days before Passover, and they bring this thing in the house, and they rub its legs with this oil because what they're trying to do is make sure it doesn't ding itself or ruin it on something. And then as it gets closer, like the second day, this one's more of an anointing than anything. A couple days before they kill it, you know, they put some on its head, just, you're the Passover lamb, anointed, and it's going to die, and they're going to eat it. Here's my body given for you, the world. Here's my blood. This is the blood of the new covenant, the blood that sacrificed for your sins. The whole thing points to Christ. So let's just get to the other section because I want to show you they're different. This is a year. So this one happens, this first one with this woman, this unnamed woman who's a sinful woman in the town, but she recognizes Jesus as the Savior. She understands it. She understands something that almost no one understands. And she comes in and she's willing to extravagantly worship him. Give her the best that she's got. Something that almost nobody has and probably she got in bad ways. How'd she get that alabaster jar full of nard? It's probably from her lifestyle. And if that bothers you, don't let it. That's how we should extravagantly worship our God. I bring this alabaster jar that I got through all of the sin that I've acquired in my life so far and said, just, God, I need you. Would you take what's messed up inside of me 
and make it yours and purge me of my sin and make me a new creation and, and you see the blood of Christ on me and then I'm not destroyed? Can you, can you do that for me? And Jesus said, I've been waiting for you to come. Yeah. Have you ever thought that everything that the Israelites used in the temple as they're wandering through the desert for 40 years, everything that was the holy place and the holiest place, it was all from Egypt, and they used that stuff to worship, cult worship, pagan worship, many polytheistic gods. All that stuff was used to create the holy place and the most holy place. Where did the Israelites get all their stuff? From the Egyptians. Jesus is always resurrecting, restoring. Then he takes what was broken and messed up like that dead kid in Nain and says, now stand up alive because you're, you're not sick anymore. You're not broken anymore. You're not dead anymore. Amen. So go to this. So... Amen. This is John. John chapter 12, verse 1. John chapter 12, verse 1. And it reads like this. This is a different anointing. You can tell by how it's laid out. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Nain is here, Sea of Galilee, Jordan, 100 miles south. That's your Dead Sea, that's Jerusalem, that's Bethany. Very close. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took about a pint of pure... Mary, we know who this is now, took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, filled with the worship. The house was filled with the worship, with her act of worship. But one of his disciples, guess who? One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to portray Jesus, not much later, six days later, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this. The scripture even tells us, because here's, here's something about God. He loves you, and he defends you. He's our forward and rear guard. He could care less about your reputation. That does not matter to him. Not that he doesn't love you in that way, but he's not busy trying to protect your reputation. He's protecting his. He does this for his name's sake. He loves, he is light, and he is love. But he's so much more than that. He's powerful. He's the one that breathes the universe into existence and then holds it all together. But then zooms in on this tiny little dot called Earth. He's that God. He's a God that runs into your chaos when everything's broken and raises you up out of it. He's that God. But your reputation doesn't matter. You're not going to get to heaven off your reputation. 
You're going to get to heaven by following Jesus. So the word doesn't protect anyone's reputation. It tells us that Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he hates them. He's not afraid of them. He hates them. He's waiting for God to blow them off the face of the earth while he's sitting, eating popcorn on the hill, waiting for the show. And the book ends. <laughs> like, wait. Oh, there's so much more of that story. That's another message. The, it tells us what David did. The amazing things he did and the things that would have put him in a lifetime of jail. It tells us both. The Psalms say, praise you, God. You're amazing. You're wonderful. I love you. You're everything to me. And they also say, how long, Lord? Will you not look? Will you not see? Will you forget me forever? He doesn't care about your reputation. He cares about your salvation. And sometimes our reputation has to suffer for a little while so we focus on him and see him and realize this was never about me. It's about you. But somehow you make everything about me. What an awesome God. So back to where we were. Judas says, couldn't this have been given to the poor? Why are you pouring on Jesus' feet? Wow. Why are you worshiping extravagantly? That's stupid. We could have done something for someone else. He didn't say that, though, because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And that was a lot. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. None of them know that he's six days from dying. None of them. They don't get it. He keeps telling them, but they don't get it. They shake their heads, and they don't get it. You'll always have the poor among you, meaning you can minister to them anytime you want, but you won't always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, and they came, not only because of him, but to see Lazarus, whom he just raised from the dead. And then listen to how this finishes. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus. <laughs> Gee. Uh, as well as Jesus. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Dang. He raised, you know, he's dead. Yay, he's dead. Oh, they, he raised him to life. Well, let's kill him again. Let's see if Jesus can do it twice. Yeah, really. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just like, what? Where is your mindset? Broken hateful, but savable. But then you get to Mark. It's slightly different. Get to Mark, and you find, and it's Mark uh, 14. I'm just getting there. And it's 14.1, right at the beginning. I'm reading it for a reason. Now the Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. John said it was six. It's only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. Let's kill him another way. While he was in Bethany, he's still up there, 
reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and this time poured the perfume on his head. This is Mark, who's very familiar with Mary and Lazarus and would have named her. We've got a different situation. She breaks the jar, pours a perfume, this time on his head, not his feet. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly, not just Judas. Here's a real big danger, people. If you're in a position of authority in the body of Christ and you go off the rails, you take people with you. Last time it was just one person, Judas, and we all know how he goes. And he's like, you know what? That could have been used for the poor. Don't worship Jesus like that. That could have been used for the poor. And now four days later, it happens again, and there's a whole bunch of people saying it. Hey, Judas is right. They echo his words. This could have been used for the poor. They're all rebuking her. They just saw this, and they just saw Jesus say, don't do that, and they're doing it again, and more people are doing it. And they don't understand that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Does it even not escape anyone's notice that Jesus isn't in some active way setting up his death to line up with the Passover, but the Spirit of God is? It's the Romans who kill him. It's the Pharisees who are trying to kill him. It's everyone else who's trying to make him die at the exact right time that Jesus intended to. But Jesus doesn't go and turn himself in on the perfect day so that he dies according to the scriptures. God is so amazing that it happens through the world. It happens through the world around him. It was prophesied 800 years earlier in Isaiah that this would happen, and it happens just like that, and it happens at the hands of the world doing it, not Jesus making sure it happened, lining it up, saying, okay, I'm turning myself in. You probably should kill me on a cross, and it should be, I guess, you know, um, on Golgotha, and it's got to be at this date. That way I look like the Passover lamb. They just did it, and he becomes the Passover lamb because he always was the Passover lamb. Leave her alone, Jesus says. Why are you bothering her? How often do you think Jesus must have been like, just, I can't, I just can't with these guys. I mean, you know, just to, to, to be that clear. Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want, but you won't always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body before burial to prepare me for it. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached, what this woman has done will be told in memory of her. Man, I... Lord Jesus, let that be said of me. Let that be said of center point. Let that be said of us where wherever the gospel is preached, what we do for all eternity will be said of us. Hey, we honored you, but we'll just be looking at you. It won't matter. But I just want 
to know we did it right. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to tell the chief priests he was going to betray Jesus to them. And they were delighted to hear it. That's how that finishes. This is wild. Back in Egypt, 2,500 years earlier, back in Egypt, you've got the Hebrew slaves. Now, they've been there for 400 years, over 400 years at this point that they're going to get freed. Some people grew up a slave, died a slave. Grew up a slave, their great-grandfathers were slaves. Their great-great-grandparents were slaves, and they're slaves. They're, never, it's, they're not getting out. It's not going to change. They don't see any end. One of the generations, the babies get tossed in the Nile. Moses narrowly avoids it. After all these centuries of living among the world... Egypt always being synonymous with the world, they started to do what Egyptians were doing. They started to behave like Egyptians, even worshiping some of their gods because they're just surrounded by it all the time. They're the ones in power, so they must, maybe, maybe their god's the way to look at it. They're really getting down on how things were in their life, so they started to copy the world around them. Losing, losing ground. One of the things that's been dug up archaeologically is Egyptians would have the two doorposts and, and like a rock lentil across the top when you entered the house. You'd come through that door frame. And the rock lentil would have, they would do this on purpose, they would put in rock their name, whatever their Egyptian name. So for me, it'd be like, you know, the Dodge clan, welcome to the Dodge family, whatever, and put it up there. The thought process was this. If my name lives on after I die, then I can live forever. I live as long as that rock lives. Rocks last forever, according to them. I mean, they're in a desert, a bunch of sand. Rocks seem to be the thing that would never, never, never fall apart and go away. So they put their name in the rock. They'd carve their name in the rock, put it on the lentil, and that was, as long as that rock stayed, even if the house fell down, the rock was still sitting on the ground with their name in it, then they in the afterlife would still be alive. Their, their ba, their spirit in the afterlife would still survive, as long as that rock was there. And that's why the Egyptian pharaohs would build these giant rock tombs. That in the afterlife, I want to live, and then I'm going to put all my servants, they'd put all their living servants in there too, who would die so they could serve them in the afterlife. So being one of their servants was a real bummer. You're on your way to the temple, uh, um, you know, seal it. They'll serve me in the afterlife. As long as there's rock around you, you were supposed to live in the afterlife. But when that thing all fell apart, then you were supposed to die and your spirit would, would cease to exist. That's how they saw it. That's what they believed. Do you know that archaeologically, they have pulled up in Goshen, what was Goshen? A whole bunch of homes of Israelites that had that same rock lentil with their name in Hebrew printed in it. They were following the customs of the Egyptians around them, like, well, I guess that's the way to live forever. There's got to be something better than being a slave my whole life. And they'd carve their name in the rock and put it over that. And so Jesus comes and says, okay, it's the last plague. 
And he comes by speaking to Moses. Moses comes and tells him, here's what God spoke to me. And there's only one way to talk to God, and it's through the diffusion of Jesus, because you can't stand in God's presence without being blown off the surface. So Jesus is who, how we, he, God even says, hey, look, there's this rock I can put you in. You can talk to him. You can even see me walk by. I'm going to put you in the rock. It's a cleft of a rock. What is that? That's Jesus. He's wrapping him in Jesus so he can be close to God. That's what he's got to do with us. Wrap us in Jesus so we can be close to God because God's so holy and we're not. Moses goes and tells the people, hey, when the destroyer comes tonight, he's going to put judgments on all these gods of Egypt. So here's what you do. Take a Passover lamb. Kill it. Take a hyssop branch. Put it in the blood and then wipe it up and down the doorpost and then wipe it on the rock lentil. Meaning wipe the blood of Christ over all that garbage that you've been adopting as you've been sitting here in the world, as you've been here in Egypt, as you've been here just, just kind of accessing what, what, what horrible ideas that they're doing and you're copying it. I'm going to change everything. Wipe the blood of the lamb over that garbage and the destroyer will pass right on by he'll see that blood and that'll be the symbol to him that you are not to be destroyed the wages of sin are death but not for you because the blood of christ is wiped on your door so what do we do people they had one thing right your name should be inscribed in the rock in the rock of jesus christ your name should be inscribed there it's, it's, it's in his wrist. It's in his feet. Your name is inscribed there. If you invite Jesus into your heart, your name is inscribed in the rock of Christ and the blood of Jesus is painted over your sin and it doesn't exist anymore. It is the way to eternal life. And that rock will never perish. It will never fade. It will never grow old. It will never fall apart. And so you will live forever with Jesus Christ. Not live forever like we do now. Live forever without sin. Because Matthew and Mark are so similar on the final, on, because they're the same, they are the same story, and, and the head gets anointed, Jesus has modeled everything after the Passover lamb. And he's done it all through outside. He's, he's got outside sources. But why the repeated application? That's not for Jesus. Jesus is God. He's had the Holy Spirit from the get-go. He, he is one with God and the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's for us. It's for us to see and understand. He's the God of resurrection he is the God that purges sin. He's the God that restores. He's the God that heals. He is our Passover lamb. He was always to be our Passover lamb. He will always be our Passover lamb.